Welcome to Teacher Quit Talk. I'm Miss Redacted. And I'm Mrs. Frazzled. Every week we explore the teacher exodus to find out what, if anything, could get these educators back in the classroom. We've all had our moments where we thought, what the hell am I doing here? From burnout to bureaucracy to soul-sucking stressors and creative dead ends. From recognizing when it was time to go to navigating feelings of guilt and regret afterwards, we're here to cut out the gaslighting and get real about what it means to leave teaching. We've got insights from former teachers from all over the country who have seen it all. So get ready to be disturbed. Join us on Teacher Quit talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Дамы и господа, добро пожаловать в Prevail. Это второй сезон нашей борьбы с криминальными сволочами. Ваш ведущий Грег Олиар. I'm Greg Oliar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. I hope everyone had a very festive and happy Thanksgiving. Even those of you who are listening that aren't in the United States, I hope you had a nice Thursday. In the spirit of the holiday, I want to just say a couple of things that I'm thankful for. I'm thankful first and foremost for my family. I'm thankful for my friends. I have a lot of really great friends, a lot of supportive friends, and I'm just so thankful and grateful for all of them. I'm thankful for uh, my cat being okay. A couple months ago, Mark, one of our cats, wandered off at night and got hit by a car and uh, we thought we were going to lose him and we did not. He's now fully recovered. Very happy. Very thankful for that. I'm thankful for the people that help with this with this podcast that you listen to. Kanai Williams, Molly Hockey, thank you for your help. I'm thankful that Trump lost. Yeah, I am. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful we've got Kamala as vice president and for one shining moment, <laughs> president, acting president. I'm thankful Biden is in the top job. I'm thankful to the guests that I've had on this show. I've had some really great guests. I don't think I've had any bad guests. They're all good. I, I just, I love all the guests and I'm so grateful for them for, uh, for showing up because without the guests, this show would be very boring. So thank you to everybody who's appeared on the show. I'm thankful Bob Odenkirk is okay. Remember when there was like, he collapsed during the filming of the, oh, that was terrible. I was like, I can't know if I can handle this. So we're going to get Better Call Saul and it's going to be great because the cliffhanger man was just so good. I'm very excited for that to come back on. I'm thankful for Succession. What a great episode this week. Oh, my goodness. Uh, surprise return of Justin Kirk, who I love on the show. It's great. I'm thankful for poetry. I'm thankful for humor. I'm thankful, most of all, to my listeners, you guys out there. Um, otherwise, I'd just pretty much be shouting in the dark. It's weird because especially with these fake ads, I... 
I'll I'll make jokes and and I think people laugh. Maybe they laugh. Maybe they don't laugh. I don't know. Um, it's kind of like writing a joke and putting it in a in a bottle and hurling it into the ocean in a sense. Except that I know that people are listening. I know that people are reading that message that I sent. It's really great. And I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank everybody that reads my work on Prevail on the Substack. Thank you so much. I'm thankful to all of you. I'm thankful to be alive at this moment in time as crazy and as awful and as depressing and as fraught with stuff as it is. I really do believe that this is the best time to be alive that there's ever been. And I believe that. I'm not I'm not lying. I think that the technological advances and the communication and the travel and the transportation and the medicine and so much good stuff. We're so close to enlightenment, man. We're so close to it. And I just think it's great. And I really, in spite of the the obvious obstacles in front of us, I really do think that we're going to, we're going to be okay. That we're all going to be okay as a, as a species, you know, I think that, that we've evolved into something better and that this period of darkness now is kind of the sloughing off of the skin of that. And we're going to emerge as a, as just a more evolved species. So that's what I think. Anyway, I hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving. This is a rerun. Um, there's no new interview this week. I am going to instead share an interview that Moscow Never Sleeps and I did a while back with Jameson Firestone. In 1991, Jameson Firestone went to Moscow and established a law firm helping foreign businesses with Russian law. Among his clients, Bill Browder, businessman you've heard of. Among his employees, Sergei Magnitsky. Everybody knows Sergei Magnitsky. Among his adversaries, Natalia Veselnitskaya. Among his acquaintances, Alexei Navalny. So this is a really, really fascinating interview with somebody who is on the ground in Russia and really knows the terrain. And uh, it's worth revisiting. So um, that's what I got. Uh, Again, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be right back with Jameson Firestone. This is a little song I wrote for CPAC. Comic ping pong basement tapes The list of Trump's CI escapes A treasure trove of sicko kitty porn The entire pedo archive Rudy found in Karkive And every email sent by David Korn On Satoshi Nakamoto There's his real name and a photo And the crypto wallet password to his stash Footage of Benghazi, Lady Lindsay's Bacabatsi, and items that they found in Ivanka's crash. It's HRC and AOC and the Squad Black Op. More gross shit than the men's room of the local truck stop. When the truth is all revealed, it'll hit you like a mic drop. It's ooh, Hunter Biden's laptop. It's ooh, Hunter Biden's laptop. Okay, we are recording. I am here with Moscow Never Sleeps, and we have a very special guest today. Jameson Firestone is with us. How are you? Very well, thank you. Great thanks to so be much here. for uh, thanks for thanks for coming on the show. In my work in the last four years, which has nothing to do with my work in the, my previous incarnation of life, I've I've just 
studied and written a lot about Trump and Russia and all the, the sort of connections. And you're somebody who knows so much about this. So I'm excited to talk to you. Um, and I'm sure my listeners will be as well to kind of enlighten us about stuff that's happening and has happened, you know, with regards Putin and Russia and the regime, and of course the Magnitsky Act and your work with that. So, but let's start, let's start uh, early on. You went to Moscow in 1991. So tell us a little bit about who you are and your, your early career there. And why did, you, why did you decide to go there? Sorry. Seemed like a good idea at the time. Uh, <laughs> um, so I, I, I'm, I'm a New York lawyer, but, but if, you, if you need a New York lawyer, don't call me. I've never practiced a day in my life in the state of New York. Uh, I took the New York bar in 1991. I got on a, a plane uh, one week after taking the bar before I even got results pass or whatever and went to Moscow because it was Gorbachev and, you know, bring, uh, develop uh, democracy and the free market, right? And um, I got there literally right before the, Gorbachev was kidnapped, right before that putsch attempt. Oh, and um, I had no idea what I was gonna do, but what I ended up doing was setting up Moscow's first uh, foreign owned independent law firm. And that became my business for the next 18 years in Moscow. What was it like there at the time? It must have, it must have been like crazy. I, I, I always feel I, I, I'm, I'm of the age where I feel like I'm Gen X, but I'm later Gen X. I feel like I miss out on all the cool stuff. So I feel like Moscow in 1991 must have been like totally amazing in a lot of ways. Well, you know, when, when I went over there, it was still the Soviet Union. It was August of 1991 and uh, everything was, I mean, there was no traffic in the streets and, and, and the only billboards were communist propaganda even though it was the Gorbachev era. And then after Gorby was kidnapped, when he was returned, even though he was still president of the Soviet Union, there was this incredible feeling that Russians had stood in front of these tanks. It was grandmothers who stood in front of the tanks. It was grandmothers, the ones who, who yelled like, you can't cut in front of us in line. The same ones were saying, standing in front of the tanks going, you're not gonna run us over, we're your grandmothers, we're your mothers. And just yelling at the, the tank commanders, these young kids. And so all of a sudden, everything had changed overnight. And there was literally the statue of Lenin across the street from the Bolshoi theater. Somebody had spray painted it in Russian with forgive me on Lenin, right, on Lenin. <laughs> and Gorby basically, power just drifted away from him and went all to Yeltsin, even though there was no official recognition of this. And by Christmas of that year, the Soviet Union voted itself out of existence. And you had the independent Russia flying a different flag, not the communist Russian uh, Republic flag, but the tricolor that they fly today. And everybody, it just felt like everything was possible. It felt like such a, it was such a, an era of possibility. If the people could do this, they could do anything. And, and, and Russia was going to have a great and free future. Now, of course, it, it didn't really turn out that way. And, and then, you know, as things went on, Yeltsin became kind of a drunkard and his family took more and more power onto themselves. And they did the, 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 the shock theory where they just privatized everything and let the prices go where they were. And, and so what happened was, I mean, on the one hand, yeah, it was wild. I mean, it used to be at the point where if you wanted to go to a a normal restaurant and there weren't many you had to bribe at the door and then patio pizza opens up and all this it's a restaurant where you don't have to you don't have to bribe anybody to like get a table it was great <laughs> um but you and you had this dual system like ruble would you like to go to our ruble hall or our dollar hall and the prices are the same 100 rubles or 100 dollars the only difference was 100 rubles was three dollars and 100 dollars was 100 dollars right but the 100 dollar sign had no line and, and the ruble sign you know they would the the, the, the guards would go 
either it had a line around the block or the guards would go, oh, uh, I, you know, we don't have any tables till Tuesday, expecting you to bribe them. And I would be like, oh, I live here. I'll come back on Tuesday. What, what time can I have a reservation, right? <laughs> um, but all that weirdness. Uh, Jamie, do you, do you remember what they were called, those guys? Oh, the guys who stood at the door? Yeah. Well, I mean, were, in, at the clubs, they were called, we called them face control, but I don't remember what they were called. Yeah, but in the Soviet times, we called them Schwitzar, the Swiss guard. <laughs> no, I mean, it, you know, it was crazy. But but during that that period between 1991, when the Soviet Union fell by voting itself out of existence, and 1993, when increasingly people were getting poorer and poorer, and the, the communists controlled the, the parliament and Yeltsin controlled the, the presidency and the parliament was impeaching the president and the president was trying to dissolve parliament. And finally, the parliamentarians occupied the White House. And as Alexei Navalny has said, and I, I said this as well, we both made the same mistake back then, which was we thought that because you know, Yeltsin wasn't a communist, right? We, we were fully in favor of doing what was, you know, what was, what was necessary to get out the, the communist people who had occupied the parliament. And, and, you know, what Yeltsin eventually did was roll tanks in front of the, the parliament and shell it. And, you know, in retrospect, that was a terrible mistake. If you don't like the way your government is going, um, you don't, you, you don't, well, you don't shell Congress or storm Congress, right? You don't, no. storm, you don't shell that, which is what they did. And so what they ended up getting was, you know, the path from that eventually led to the path towards, towards Putin. So that was, uh, uh, and just as an aside, I was, I was there with my original law partner, who happened to be my closest friend. And the night before the shelling, we had been walking around the occupied White House because it was kind of like a, it was almost like a fairground. There was barbed wire everywhere and the, the parliament was held up. And, and as we were walking around this group of 10 people, we all got separated. And um, I was remained with one friend and we noticed that they were saying, take the TV station. People were standing on the balcony, parliamentarians, the vice president, take the TV station to the, get in the trucks, go to Astankano, that's the TV tower. And these young people started to get into these trucks. Some of them had guns, but most of them had like clubs or pipe or whatever. And, and I remember just hearing a random woman speaking English. She goes, oh, I wouldn't miss this for the world. This is history being made. And I, I turned to my, my friend and I just said, uh, we need to go home because yeah. if, if Yeltsin doesn't kill all of these people tonight, there will be no Yeltsin government tomorrow. I mean, you can't take the national TV station. So we went home and eventually I got a call about nine o'clock at night from my friend, Michael O'Hare, who worked in the TV station. And he was screaming uncontrollably. And I was like, what's going on? What's going on? I said, people, people drove a truck with a bomb through the, through, through the Estancano door. And there are snipers in the streets. And there's like 20 exits to Estancano. And we all went running out. And this is an American kid who was working for a Russian TV station. And I ran to the first building that I could get. And I rang all the doorbells. Some babushka let me in. I'm in her apartment under a table with her. And snipers are taking out the windows. And um, oh so... Unfortunately, that night, my best friend and partner didn't come back, and um, he was the only American casualty at uh, Estancano. He had gone from the, uh, the White House, the Parliament building, where we had all gotten separated, to the uh, TV tower. And uh, as Russians were being shot by snipers, he was putting the wounded in the, in the ambulances, and the New York Times 24-year-old American 
journalist by the name of Otto Pohl got shot twice. So my partner, law partner Terry, was pulling him back and was shot in the head um, while pulling Otto out of the line of fire. Otto did live. Um, so, you know, times got, times went from very, very wild and fun to very dark and scary quickly in 93. And then from 93 to 96, went out of control where Yeltsin was drinking and he was having heart problems. And eventually, as you know, Yeltsin uh, gave us the gift that kept on giving Vladimir Putin, bringing him out in 1996, I believe it was, as our, uh, as our new leadership, or bringing him in in 1996. I can't remember if it was 96 or 98. No, 96, he was lining him up in 98, I think he became president. We'll, we'll, we'll get to him. And okay. uh, very sorry to hear about the loss of your friend, but brave guy to be there at all and to be helping people. Everybody, I think, listening to this knows Magnitsky and has heard certainly the name before. And I want to get into the the kind of specifics of, of who he was, what he was doing, what his relationship was with you, with Bill Browder, and why um, his memory has become kind of a rallying cry. As I said, we, we set up this law firm and, and our, our clients were basically foreigners entering, entering the Russian market. And our whole, our whole premise was that one can do business legally in Russia. You can pay all your taxes and still make a profit. And so we were kind of in the business of bulletproofing our, our clients, making them so compliant that they couldn't be shook, shook down for people who wanted bribes, that they could, um, if challenged by the authorities, go into a court of law and say, no, we don't owe those taxes and, and, and fight them. So Sergei Magnitsky, he was the, um, the head of my tax and audit department, I and mean, a specialist in tax law specifically. Although he was a licensed auditor, his real practice was, was tax law. We did very few tax audits. And so the idea, you know, client comes to you, they say, we want to do business in Russia. Uh, how do we set up? And, and Sergey like, was always their first stop. I mean, maybe they'd meet me as the introduction, but Sergey would sit, listen to them and say, okay, so this is how you want to do your business. This is how you want to structure. And we would set them up following basically Sergey's instructions, his blueprint, so to speak. And if they ever got in questions, or, and we would also keep, if they wanted us, keep their books or review their books. We had a whole team under Sergey that did nothing but review people's uh, tax filings before they were filed to make sure that they filed the right amount and paid the right amount. So one day I get this idea, which was um, there were all these hedge funds in, in the early, in the late 90s and in the early 2000s coming into Russia. And Russia, in a way, is, is, is at the time was kind of antiquated. I mean, if you, if you agreed to buy stock over the phone, you still needed a paper contract. So somebody would draft a paper contract to buy those shares and you'd have to run around town and getting it sold, uh, signed. So you've got these hedge funds buying hundreds of millions of dollars worth of stock and they're spending all their time um, running contract, organizing contracts to run around town and accounting and tax. And they're, you know, they, they don't want to do any of this. They just want to buy and sell their, their stock. So I got this idea, why don't we become the back office for hedge funds? Why don't we promote this service using Sergey's team where we'll say, okay, you want to set up a hedge fund in Russia, we'll show you how to do it legally. And more than that, um, we'll do all the accounting and auditing in the background, run all this stuff back and forth. And you basically just have to review it and sign on the dotted line. So in doing that, we picked up a very large portion of the hedge funds in Moscow, including William Browder's Hermitage Capital. So we set up Hermitage Capital. We gave them the 
advice on how to structure in, in, in Russia. And Hermitage went on to make an awful lot of money. They, at the time, by 2006, so also I should say something about Bill. So Bill Browder's strategy was a little weird. What he would do is he would invest in companies where lots of stealing was going on and which had been undervalued because of the stealing. And then he would expose all the stealing and try and force the management out. And he had been very successful at doing this. And as soon as you force the, the old guys out, the share price goes up and you're holding the shares bought at this price before uh, that happened. So well, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So that was his way of, uh, he was call, calling himself an activist investor. And so Bill was picking fights with major, major oligarchs and winning. It was really amazing. And, and one of the first things that Bill did when Vladimir Putin came into power was Bill was a huge investor in, in Gazprom, the state gas company, was he presented a dossier on all the stealing going on um, in Gazprom. And Vladimir Putin's team used that to totally throw out all of the Gazprom management and put in new management and the stock really went up. And then they stole more than the previous management. <laughs> so Bill's team you know, tried to get on the board and they put in a whole other dossier uh, to expose this stealing, thinking that Vladimir Putin was a really good guy because he acted on their last thing. And they didn't understand that Putin wasn't a good guy acting on their last thing. Putin used their last expose as an excuse to throw out a group of thieves so he could put in his own thieves. And now when Bill's team was exposing the new stealing, it's like, no, no, those are our guys. That's, that's not, yeah. you know, you can't. So they, um, they blocked Bill Browder they, from coming back into the country as a, as a threat to national security. And Bill tried a few times to get back into Russia, couldn't fix it. And so what he did was he liquidated his entire Gazprom portfolio uh, because he couldn't get back into the country. And it just so happened that when he did it, he did it at the absolute top of the market. I mean, the, the prices had never yeah. been higher and they've never been higher since, by the way. <laughs> so so um, he liquidated about $2 billion worth of, of Gazprom. He made about... Um, billion dollars profit at the time. No, he made two, sorry, five, $5 billion in, in, in Gazprom, $2 billion worth of profit. And, and he had to pay 25% on that $2 billion in profit, which was half a billion dollars in tax. So we oversaw that. We're, we're the guys like actually yeah. filling out the tax. So, so one day, Sergey Magnitsky comes into my office. He goes, he's, he's standing in front of my desk. Goes, you want to hear a funny story? I'm like, uh, yeah, he goes, I, I just got called in by the tax inspectors. And I'm like, well, did it go all right? He goes, well, I mean, it depends whose perspective you're, you're talking about. I mean, I think, I think the, the tax, the head of the tax inspector was very upset. I said, why? He said, well, you know, they said, you paid all this tax. You paid all this tax at once. And so he goes, well, I, I know. I mean, that's what we owe. He goes, but no, you don't understand. I get a budget of how much tax I need to collect every year. And you've just paid 10 times the budget that I'm supposed to collect. So they're going to give me a budget bigger than this next year. And I won't be able to make this collection budget. You're, you're, you're making my life difficult by paying all these taxes. And so he's like, oh, wait a minute. Oh you know, we, we can't control when we pay the taxes. We, we have to pay them now. Sorry. Sorry, your life's going to be difficult. And you know, so we're laughing about this. But, you know, then what happened wasn't so funny after we paid all these taxes. I mean, yeah. um, so that was uh, when Bill left, we liquidated, we paid this half a billion dollars worth of tax and Bill gave us the mandate, Hermitage said, now liquidate all those empty 
companies for us. They're, they're no, they've paid their tax, they sent their profits out. We got, you know, we got our 1.5 billion post-tax profit. We've paid half a billion in tax. These are just empty companies, liquidate them. And so we were calmly liquidating when the troubles hit. That's really, I didn't know that about the, it's so messed up. I think some of this bureaucracy is is ingrained in the culture there, like the, the Soviet bureaucracy. Because I, as I understand it, when people go through now and try to study things, there's paper trails of everything and anything that ever happens, even during Stalin, no matter how crazy or, or, or how many people died or whatever, there's just this paper trail and this need for this paper trail that's deeply kind of embedded in the culture. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we found was that when we, the reason we know so much and have exposed so much was after, look, after, after Sergei's death, we've got the orders, the orders to beat him while he's dying with rubber trenches and the guy we've got the name of the guy who signed off on that and the name of the eight officers authorized to do the beating they document everything oh that's just, just awful after we paid all those taxes the russians uh found a creative way to stole steal half back so they stole back 230 million of the of the 500 million that bill paid and sergey was the one who figured out that they had stolen the tax back and he, because they did that switcheroo, remember uh, Putin was president, but he switched with Medvedev and became prime minister. And mm. our new lawyer president, Medvedev, was saying everybody must fight legal nihilism, you know, fight corruption. So Sergei acted on that. He, he reported the crime that uh, 230 million had been stolen from his own government by corrupt officials. And those same corrupt officials put him in prison, held him there for a year, tortured him, and eventually killed him in a Russian prison. So. When they killed Sergei, um, Bill Browder, who was this you know billionaire hedge fund guy, um, pulled like a Bruce Wayne. He hung up his business and turned his hedge fund office into like the Bat Cave, and hired you know his entire legal team and analyst team, no longer to analyze the value of stocks, but to figure out who stole the money, to build on Sergei's findings, and to trace the money, to actually trace the money to different officials who Sergei had accused. And we did that. So after we, we managed to find, for instance, $3 million going to, one, to the police officer whose team arrested Sergei and, and had participated in the theft, we found a million three that went to another one. The, the grandmotherly ladies in the tax office who refunded the 230 million, three grandmotherly-like ladies put $42 million in their pockets. So when we found this, Bill funded me to make some videos, and I made these great YouTube videos exposing these officers, showing exactly what they did and how much money they got and the property they bought and who was holding it and where it was being held. And it was a sensation. We got millions of viewers and everybody in Russia, no, nobody had seen anything like this before. And we couldn't get any criminal cases opened. The, the higher police would investigate and say, oh, the police officers were just naturally rich. They have rich parents. And of course, we found them living on $300 a month in, 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 their, in their apartments that they got from the Soviet Union, right? And the tax officials, they had all the money in their parents' name. The parents are living in a broom closet somewhere. I mean, there's a special place in hell for people who steal $42 million and let their parents live in squalor, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And, 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 but we couldn't get any action. So Bill, what do you do when the country that's supposed to be prosecuting people, uh, its corrupt officials, doesn't? So Bill got this idea, which was um, 
when you steal when you steal money, you want to spend it. And and Russians like to keep their money and spend their money abroad. That's the whole thing. They can't keep it in Russia because there's always a bigger fish than them that's going to steal uh, the money from them. And they uh, and they, and they can't you know they they can't buy the same stuff in Russia. They can't eat it. They, they want to go to the south of France. They want to have their kids educated here. So the idea was, why not just get them blocked from doing that? Because every country controls its own immigration and has control over the assets in its jurisdiction. So in theory, the United States can say, you know, we don't want crooks and thieves in our, in our country. And if you have any money here, we'll freeze it. So he got this idea of doing that. And um, through uh, Kyle Parker, who was working with Senator Cardin and a bunch of other senators, they, they put together a draft law, the Magnitsky Act. And the Magnitsky Act initially said anybody involved in the crime of stealing this money or killing Sergei or covering up that crime could be blocked from the United States and have their assets frozen. And anybody who attacks people like Sergei. So if you attack a journalist, if you attack a, a, a human rights activist, if you attack an anti-corruption activist, if you did the kinds of things that you had that, that were done to Sergei, all of those people would be banned as well. But it only applied to Russia. And um, we got the Magnitsky Act passed in the United States in 2012. And Putin was going crazy. He was lobbying against it. He was, and, and we didn't, you know, look, we didn't get any support from the Obama administration on this because President Obama um, was in the, uh, you know, had ordered Hillary Clinton to make nice nice with the Russians and push the reset button. Mm. So they were all trying, you know, to do their big love fest. And we had to go essentially over their heads and go to Congress and get the Magnitsky Act passed by Congress with enough support that it would have withstood a veto. So Obama signed it into law. So we got the Magnitsky Act. Putin went nuts. He did two things. Um, he couldn't retaliate the same way, kind of. I mean, he did. He packed what was he passed a special law called the Dima Yakolev uh, Act. And what it did was it it stopped all the prosecutors who put Victor Boot, the merchants of death, in prison. So if anybody, if you were if you were involved in putting the, the merchant of death in prison, you could no longer come to Russia, right? Oh um, no, so here I can't we are, have right? my money we're, in we're, Russia. We're, we're like punishing human rights abusers and saying, you, if you're a human rights abuser, you can't come to America. And they're saying, if you persecute uh, Russian gun runners and weapon, you know, and, and arms traders. And the other thing they did, was, which was really terrible, was they um, said Americans could no longer adopt Russian children. Right. And, this was terrible because Americans were adopting about 4,000 Russian kids a year. They were only taking kids who had physical or psychological problems because you weren't allowed to adopt perfectly healthy kids. These kids were languishing in orphanage and had no chance whatsoever. And a lot of them could live very normal lives with the kind of care that we have available in America. And they stopped that. And, and 300 families were in the process of adoptions where the kids had met the parents already. Stopped that too. That brought... 20,000 Russians onto the street in protest, the march against scoundrels where they say, you know, how, how, how could Putin attack the children, the, the, the weakest children of our country? So that was the original Magnitsky Act. And I, I should say we expanded it in, uh, in 2016. We expanded the Magnitsky Act by saying it should include, first of all, it should be worldwide, and it should include corruption. 
corruption should be a reason that gets you sanctioned and can't come to the end. Mm -hmm. and, and if you think the human rights bothered Vladimir Putin, it didn't bother him anywhere near as the idea as corruption gets you blocked from the United States and your money frozen. And he went nuts. And, and to give you an idea how much he went nuts, we had a, uh, Bill Browder had brought, a, had, had given uh, the uh, SDNY, Southern District of New York, a dossier on money laundering that was going through New York, money that had come from the crime that Sergei discovered, and it, had, and it was used to buy property in New York City. And so he went um, to Preparaha, he opened a, a criminal case, froze all, uh, sorry, a civil case, uh, but he froze all of that property. And the general prosecutor of Russia said something very, very important because they had been denying the whole story of, they, they, at this point they were saying the theft from the treasury, our, our officials didn't do it. It was Browder, it was Magnitsky, it was Firestone. And the general prosecutor said something very interesting when SDNY froze these properties. They said, if this case is proven in a US court, money laundering from this crime, it will validate the entire Browder Magnitsky narrative. It will mean that the money was really stolen and it will validate the reason for having sanctions named for Sergei Magnitsky. And of course, Russia couldn't have that happen. So what Russia did was something crazy. The lead lawyer defending these alleged money launderers was an unknown woman by the name of Natalia Veselnitskaya Mm. And they deputized, deputized her. They went to this woman and they said, we have the same problem. Your client is being sued by the U.S. because of information provided by the Browder team. And we need um, to discredit their true narrative. We have to say that they're crooks and thieves. So here's what's going to happen. You now work for the Russian government secretly and anything you need from us, we'll give you. So what would happen is during the trial, the U.S. government would, would write through the Justice Department, make a formal request. The, U, the, the U.S. Department of Justice requests the U.S. Minister, the Russian Ministry of Justice to provide information on this case and these particular people who are accused of money laundering. They would then send an email to Veselnitskaya, who is the defense attorney secretly, hey boss, what do you want us to, what do you want us to say to this one, right? She would write the answer, right? Say, put this on justice ministry stationary. The Russian Federation Ministry of Justice has fully investigated this case and found that these people are completely innocent. And it's Browder, Magnitsky, and Firestone who are the crooks that stole this money. Please put that on Russian Ministry of Justice uh, letterhead and send that to the US DOJ. And they got caught, but they didn't get caught immediately. See, before they got caught, they, she, she was rather active. She hired Glenn, Sim Glenn Simpson, who did the PP dossier, and had him go to Congress and call us crooks and, uh, and thieves. She went to Congress and also said that we were all crooks and thieves. And then she took a little stop, a little detour after Trump had won the election, but before he was sworn in. And she met with the Trump camp, you know, incoming team in Trump Tower, the infamous Trump Tower meeting. This is the same Veselnitskaya. And the whole subject of the meeting was Browder, Magnitsky and Firestone are crooks. And um, if you kill the sanctions, right? You can have good relations with Russia and you can start adopting kids again. Now, let me, since this is deal talk, right? Because Trump likes to talk in deals. I mean, he wasn't right. there, but his kids were there. Um, so the deal is let our crooks come to your country, keep their money in your bank, 
and you'll have good relations with Russia. So basically, all you have to do is be nice to Russian crooks, and you get good relations with Russia. That is the secret. There is no, there is no other secret. They, the Veselnitskaya delivered the message in Trump Tower. Um, just to, just despite to doing in. that, we did get the, uh, all of this blew up in their faces. Their entire defense team was disqualified. Veselnitskaya was indicted, but she was already back in Russia. And uh, the, uh, her client, uh, settled without an admission of guilt, but pay, paid almost $6 million. And the Magnitsky Act was expanded to include corruption. And Vladimir Putin really doesn't like Browder or myself or, or anything. Which uh, is and a badge now, of honor. Most badge importantly, of honor. the Magnitsky Acts are being adopted all over the world. So they've been, there's one adopted in Canada, there's one adopted in the EU, the uh, UK. Uh, has a Magnitsky Act that includes both human rights and corruption. And so it's becoming, it's going to be the norm to have Magnitsky sanctions where you essentially say, we don't want odious crooks in our nation. If you, you know, and, and that's becoming the norm. And that's, and that's the legacy that we've built for Sergei. And it makes the world a better place. It and it sure doesn't just apply to Russia anymore. It sure does. Moscow, what were you going to say? I mean, the deal that she wait, was wait. offering or trying to offer the American government is the deal that they had offered the UK government. And for the most part, they they achieved. I mean, for, for the longest time, you know, London was, was quite at home with turning a blind eye on it. And, you know, you can go into a couple of explanations of the differences in the past between how the UK looks at this sort of thing and how the US looks at this sort of thing. But the great news is, just two weeks ago, the UK appears to have tracked almost completely to the US position on how and why to enforce Magnitsky. And that is a huge disappointment to the Kremlin. Yeah, and it was done, by the way, I should say, because the Russians killed a lot of people in the UK. I which, mean, they, made... which even the British object to after a while. Right, so, you know, look, the first time when, they, when the Russians killed Litvinenko, there was a, a very serious freeze in relations here. But the, the freeze in relations had a financial effect and the government here got cold feet and all of a sudden went in for the Russian love fest again for all the money. Um, and we had a lot of other murders that occurred here, in, including, I mean, somebody who gave me documents, I'm, we're pretty sure he was poisoned. Uh, he gave me documents to make an expose of the tax inspectors. 44 years old, died vomiting green goo, you know, here in Surrey. But what the straw that broke the camel's back, of course, was the scripples. So they tried, the Russians sent two guys over here to, to poison the scripples. They used a nerve agent that they put on their doorknob. So not only did they almost kill the scripples, but the police officer who came in and opened the door to their house almost died. And then they just callously threw out the poison in a, in a dumpster, which was later found by somebody because it was still in its expensive fake Nina Ricci you know, box. And so a guy brought it home to his wife who sprayed it on her and died. And, and that's what it took uh, to, to bring the British around that uh, the Russians had to unfortunately kill quite a few people in the UK before the Russians went, I mean, before the British went, okay, this enough is enough. We, we also need to, to draw a line somewhere. This is interesting. The, uh, going back to something you were saying earlier about the concept of bringing wealth out of the country of Russia and why to do it. It, re it reminded me of the, the Tiflis bank robbery in 06, 07, 1906, 1907, which Stalin was involved in, 
you know, to, to, to raise money for the cause, for the Bolshevik cause, they boosted this bank in Tiflis, which I, I don't know what it's called now, is the capital of Georgia, which is where Stalin was from. And they stole all these at the time. They had these really enormous uh, banknotes that were, you know, 500 rubles or whatever. And I think they were backed by gold at the time. I might have one in my drawer here, whatever. You know what they, you know what they look like. And the, the government, the Romanov government immediately demonetized all of the banknotes. They were like, oh, this, these big ones, they're not valid anymore. So the guy that robbed the bank had all of these banknotes that suddenly became absolutely worthless. So it's the same thing in, in, in a much larger scale, right? Where you're, okay, you've taken all this money, which by the way is stolen from the Russian people. They're not stealing money, which I think is an important distinction to make. They're not stealing money from a corporation or from the mobster or this or that. They're taking it directly from the coffers of the Russian people. Before we uh, move on, I always forget to do this. We're going to take a short break. And we'll be right back with Moscow Never Sleeps, Jamison Firestone. Welcome to Radicalized, where truth survives and we got your back. To quote Mike Ness from Social Distortion, I think we're looking at a lot of sick boys. To quote Fugazi, promises are shit. <laughs> Radicalized is an investigative podcast on disinformation by Heidi Kuda, Jim Stewartson, High Fidelity, and Sean Carter. The first thing we can do is arrest Mike Flynn. How many people have been kicked off of Twitter by a Russian gangster? Yeah. Two thumbs. This True. guy. Radicalized, where truth survives. Follow us on Twitter, YouTube, and anchor at Radicalized Pod. This episode of Prevail is brought to you by Tales.com. That's tales as in stories and not as in jacket and tie. Tales.com is the easiest way to record your family memories. If you're anything like me, the thoughts probably crossed your mind that you should have your mom or dad, or both, write down their life stories. But here's the problem. Most people have no clue where to start, and we never get around to doing it. That's why we're partnering with Tales.com, to give families like yours a super easy way to capture your family's most important memories. Here's how it works. This is the really cool part. Tales has professional interviewers who interview your loved one over the phone, over Zoom, just like we do here on the podcast, over Zoom, and record their stories. Then Tales delivers a professionally produced podcast episode Hosted on a private webpage that your family will cherish forever. Now we're heading into the holiday season. Mom and dad, it's always impossible to find something for them, right? This is the perfect, unique, meaningful gift for a loved one that instantly becomes family heirloom. Get started right away. No shipping necessary at Tails.com. And for listeners of Prevail, that's you. Tails is offering $20 off your first purchase. Just enter promo code PREVAIL at checkout at Tails.com. That's T-A-L-E-S dot com with promo code PREVAIL for $20 off your first purchase. Check it out today. Tales.com. And now, back to the show. Okay, we're back with Jamison Firestone, Moscow Never Sleeps, and I. Um, we're laughing because it's funny because we didn't actually take a break. We took like a five-second break where we all had a sip of water. Um, <laughs> let's talk now about what's happening in Russia now and, and what's happening going forward. I, I have, first of all, early on, you mentioned Navalny and that you said way back in the day that, that he made a mistake. What do you think of him going back to Russia now? Because I, I wonder if he's having second thoughts. I would doubt he's having second thoughts. Um, look, I, I've known, uh, like I say, since 2009 and we really hit it off. 
I mean, he basically he basically stole his movie making technique from me, and the, the student has become the master. I I, I bow before him. Uh, I mean, I mean, but I he made an expose of the of the general prosecutor of Russia, where he showed that the general prosecutor of Russia, his whole family was in in business with the bloodiest mafiosi in in Russia, and that because it was so similar to my videos. The, the GP accused us openly of, 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 you know, funding it or directing it or whatever. And we had no involvement. It was his work. Uh, look, I, I think people always ask Alexei or myself or Bill, you know, are you afraid of doing this? Why do you need to do this? And, um, you know, the answer is I need to do this because I, I can't look at myself in the mirror if I don't do this. I, I mean, Bill and I do this thing for Sergei. I, my focus is a bit wider in that it includes just Russia because I very much felt that Russia was my, my country. I, I don't mean that I ever cease to be American, but I lived in Russia for 18 years and, and I love Russia. I don't love the Putin government. Um, and I don't love the Putin, you know, the, what the Putin government is doing to Russia. But I, in some ways, my work is very patriotic in, in that the more of these um, crooks and thieves we expose in the Russian government, the the better the Russian people are, right? The more people right. see this. So we can't be another way. And when Alexei's asked the same question, and he has been many times, he's like, you know, I, it makes me so angry that they're stealing from me. The people who are stealing from me are the people whose salaries I pay. I'm paying the man who's putting me in prison. I'm paying that, that fake kangaroo court judge who's breaking the law. And there are, you know, this is his, passion. This is what he cares about. I mean, obviously he cares about his wife and his kids too, but look, you get one life and everybody's going to die sooner or later. Um, yeah. And that, that's just the way it goes. Right. And, and this is, this is what he cares about. And it's not, you know, he, his lot um, is to fight this fight. And if it kills him, his family will be very sad and very proud at, at the same time. And they, they understand, and that's the way he feels. And, um, he's not he's not going to be in exile this is you know he this is his country um and uh you know Hudorkovsky didn't want to leave but Hudorkovsky is a different guy you know Hudorkovsky is never going to be he wasn't an anti-corruption activist he is now but you know how however he made his first god knows what Alexei is a very different character he he is yeah. a um this is his passion this is his country he will either you know, be Mandela and president of Russia or, or dead. There's very little in between for him. Yeah. It's, it's, it's enormously brave. I mean, when I read about what he's doing, you, you just sort of put yourself in that position. And I'm like, no, I, I, would I wouldn't go back. That's just me. He's, he's brave. I, I, he's historically, if you think about it in a history book sense, it's absolutely the right call. But man, I, 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 I'm sort of in awe of the bravery that 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 took because. Whew. Yeah, and so, I, you know, but I but just I, think, I just want to jump in for two seconds and ask two questions to to kind of guide this. One, there's always been a bit of like back detraction on Navalny. You know, he's a nationalist. He's an anti-Semite. He's a this. He's a that. And I've always got the sense that you know, they take a couple remarks of his about, you know, immigration or, um, or, or stuff like that out of context, and they use it to try to drive a wedge into his, lib uh, into his generally liberal base of support. Um, yeah. Uh, look, I, I've had 
ongoing discussions with people at Amnesty International about this and others. So uh, the first thing Alexei ever said to me when I met him back in 2009, we were sitting in a roof bar is, you know, I said, tell me about yourself because I'm a nationalist. I said, what? You know, I, I, I mean, as a, as a Jewish kid from New York, that, that's usually about the last, um, that, that usually is a conversation ender when somebody tells me that they're a nationalist, right? <laughs> right. So I, I asked him, you know, explain it. And by the way, he's got a book written about this. So Alexei is, you have to remember, Russia had no immigration laws at all for, for like 10 years. I mean, no immigration, just come, right, from the neighboring republics, which caused all sorts of problems. I mean, it's not just, oh, people are taking our jobs. It's, you know, there's no vetting of the people who come in. There's no, there's complete abuse of those people where they take them on work sites and they put them in containers and, and, and it was a mess. And Alexei was campaigning hard and rudely and crudely for immigration law. And he was never in any ways um, a racist in any way. He wasn't trying to stop immigration, but he absolutely wanted sane immigration laws with controls and reasons to let in and reasons to expel. And he never hid that. Alexei Navalny used to, to march in this nationalist march every year. And he would march, um, and, and uh, I'm forgetting her name right now, but she's very famous. For three years in a row, he marched with his Jewish friend who wore a huge Star of David on her chest, marching next to Alexei Navalny with a bunch of nationalists. And a lot of these nationalists would be coming up and, and she said, yeah, he took a lot of shit for me trying to explain, you know, trying to talk sense to angry nationalists. But, but he basically felt that you have to talk to the, the people who are rationally anti-immigrant, right? And, and, and try and win them over to the position of it's okay to have laws it's not okay to be a bigot it's not okay and and so he's whatever alexei is he's not a bigot on any level and i think amnesty made a, a terrible mistake because they played into the hands of the russians the russian government when he was named prisoner of conscience uh, consciousness sent around all this you know all, all these remarks out to try and make him look like he was some kind of a racist or something, or that he was guilty of hate speech. So they, they would remove that designation so that there would be less international support for him. Now, they're still, Amnesty is still kicking it around, but I, I mean, I think Amnesty has hurt themselves and, and isn't doing any help for Alexei here either. They should restore that status as quickly as possible. Uh, it, that was exactly my position as well. I just wanted to hear you guys, um, you know, explicate it. So here's the second thing is, and this is from last night, Navalny obviously had a lot of uh, has a lot of files and, um, and a lot of people giving him information. And so what he did was he put them with Khodorkovsky. And last night, Khodorkovsky has said, look, I've got a list and, and, and it's going to go out uh, because if anything happens, uh, if anything happens to Navalny in prison, this stuff is going to explode the Magnitsky Act. It's just going to add names all over it. So, you know, what are you hearing about that? And, and you know, where do you think this is going in the next six to 12 months? Um, you know, look, there's no question that a lot of dossiers are going to be prepared and a lot of people are going to be lined up for, for sanctions. And whether they get sanctions or not is going to depend on what Russia does here. Right. I mean, there are all sorts of ways to sanction Russians, by the way, which is funny because the you have these things called Ukraine sanctions and Ukraine sanctions 
actually say the following. You can be sanctioned for being an official of the Russian government, full stop. You don't actually have to be connected to Ukraine. You don't even have to do anything wrong. So right now, every official of the Russian government is eligible for sanctioning in America. And it's a discretionary thing. You know, the Treasury has to make a decision or not. Plus, you have the Magnitsky Act, which allows you to sanction people who are corrupt or people who are human rights violators. And so you've got a lot of people compiling lists and dossiers and files on people who should be subject to sanctions. Uh, should you know Navalny die or should they not release people who they're detaining? And look, there may be sanctions anyway. I mean, the fact of the matter is they've just destroyed Navalny's entire organization. Navalny's organization is, 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 is only dedicated to two things both of which are, are criminal in Russia, fighting corruption and, and free and fair elections, right? So these two things are, are uh, this has been declared essentially the equivalent of a terrorist, of a foreign funded terrorist network in Russia and is being dismantled and as people are being attacked. And, you know, I think that there are, I think that there are governments all over the world now trying to think how best, how best to react to this. What, what's the proper thing to do now? Um, there are criminal cases being prepared against additional criminal cases being prepared against Navalny so that they can keep him in because he's only got like two years or something. That's not enough for Putin. Right. And there are additional criminal cases being prepared against everybody high up in his network. I mean, there, there's a there's a goal here, which is to make sure that Vladimir Putin not only stays in power, but that they're allowed to continue stealing. Because what's the point? I mean, right now, you know, he's got two aims about being in power. One is he always mentions Gaddafi, right? Because, you know, Gaddafi was pulled out of a car. Uh, somebody took a pipe where the sun doesn't shine and impaled him. His last words were, this isn't permitted by law, right? And then they dragged his body around. And Vladimir Putin sees that happening to him. And so Vladimir Putin can't leave because if he leaves, that could happen to him, right? So he's only got two goals. One is staying in power, and the other is keeping them all rich and trying to keep the West open so they can spend it, which means fighting sanctions, fighting Magnitsky sanctions, because other than staying alive, you know, they want, they want to enjoy those yachts, and they want to enjoy Western medical care, and we have to expand the sanctions. The sanctions we have now are not enough. The sanctions we have now, I go sanction some guy, and his, and his kids can come over. Um, and, and that's not right. It's not a question of if you go, oh, you know, why should you, you know, punish the, the, the kids for the sins of the fathers? Because it's their money you're spending. Right. You, see, you see, you're spending the proceeds of crime. And so I'm not really punishing you. What I'm doing is I'm saying you can't bring that dirt into my country. Or if it's in my country, we're taking it away from you. And so we have to expand the sanctions, one, so that they touch the family members of these people, because that's where the money ends up. And, and, and the other thing that has to happen is right now, your chance of being hit by Magnitsky sanctions is, is slightly, you know, maybe less than being hit by lightning. Because what happens is you need the bandwidth of, this, of the State Department or Congress or, or some other organization in another country, the analog, to focus on sanctioning some bad guys. So if I put some dossiers behind you, I got to get people to look at those dossiers, right? And, and, and so normally what happens is 
we put the dossiers behind in front of people, people don't do anything, then Russia does something really, really, really obnoxious, right? And then all the dossiers are pulled out, you know, and they play them out. They go, okay, we're going to focus for like two days and we're going to sanction these six guys. And then, you know, we all go off until they do something bad again. That's not how this should work. The way this should be working, this should be a very routine way of just putting all these corrupt officials on every quarter, all over the world, coordinated, and not just in Russia, but, but in, in, wherever there's corruption like this. And so that you get all the judges who put Navalny in prison and all the fake prosecutors who put him in prison and, and everybody who signed off on that and all the analogs that are happening in, in, in countries in Africa, you know, all these people should be, you, you should have eventually, essentially a, a list of thousands and thousands of people who are not welcome in first world democracies. And that list should grow you know, exponentially because that's when it becomes a deterrent. That's when people start saying, oh, so Mr. Putin, you want me to put Navalny in prison, right? I've been a judge for 25 years. I've taken so many bribes. I think I can afford to retire right now. So the next guy comes, right? I'm retiring also. I'm not doing that because they don't want to get on the sanctions list. And when you get a whole bunch of officials who just aren't going to persecute people like Navalny or, or, or reporters or, 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 you know, or commit human rights violations, all of a sudden the world will change. So, so we need this expansion, wholesale expansion of the sanctions so they include families and so that there's some way to process a huge amount of them on an ongoing basis and coordinate it with other countries that have Magnitsky Acts. Here, here, and amen. And, you know, our work is cut out for us on this front because even with that, it's hard. It, they're so clever, these people, at getting the money in. I mean, I've been reading this book called Moneyland by Oliver. It's but mind blow the stuff that the, the the ways that people come up with to skirt the regulations and the and the um, the blocks in place. So we have to at least you know start off at a point <coughs> where we're in a unified front coming together. To you know what it reminds me of? My kids are in high school and they're doing the Zoom school. It's not really Zoom. It's Google, whatever. But these poor teachers are trying to like regulate what the kids are doing. And anytime you have a bunch of middle aged teachers versus a bunch of kids with technology that the kids are going to win. I mean, they have this whole shit figured out with they're on discord and they're doing this and they're doing that. And, and the, the teachers don't even know what hit them. And in, in this sense, we're the teachers and the kids are running amok and we have to put some discipline and order in place. I want to ask one more question before we go. This has been so interesting. Thank you so much for coming. Cause this is so much to think about. It's really been enlightening for me. Um, and I'm sure enlightening to everybody listening. You mentioned Putin. And I think you, you framed it really well about, you know, what his options are going forward. I've listened to um, Craig Unger and Yuri Svets, who was the ex-KGB uh, guy who's been working for the Americans for years and years. He seems to think that what follows Putin is going to be something worse than Putin. It's going to be the, the real bad guys from the FSB that are coming, going to come into the forefront. So what do you think is going to happen there? I, I mean, I, idealistically and also realistically, what's your, what's your crystal ball? Well, I mean, my, my, my crystal ball is it's going to be like the death of Stalin. Um, you know, there, I mean, nobody thought Khrushchev was going to be the last man standing and, you know, surprise, surprise. <laughs> and, you know, in the case of Nikita Khrushchev, that was actually a, a good move. Um, you know, I mean, we did get the Cuban Missile Crisis later, but the point is that that whole thaw was, was instrumental in, in opening up and sharing with the Russian people what had really been going on, that this whole country that 20 million people had been killed and that there was a network of concentration camps, the gulag completely across the, the country for people who did nothing wrong. So 
you know, my argument to that, Russians go, well, you know, if not Putin, then who, right? Look, we've got bad. We've got really terrible right now. We, we've got somebody who runs Russia like a KGB officer should run Russia, where they've taken control of all of the media, where everything is propaganda, where everything that threatens that system is a crime, and where they have a right to steal from you, where the whole system is built on their right to steal from the Russian people. And that's the system that they're trying to export abroad, right? Just uh, no sanctions and we'll have good relations. Don't punish our crooks and we'll have good relations. And, and by the way, we become like them when we allow it here. You have to understand, it's not like they become more like us. They come into these systems and we're all running for their money and we're all doing things, we're cleaning their money and we're arguing their cases in courts. And don't get me wrong, I mean, I've defended Russians before. It's, it's, it's difficult, you know, when somebody comes to you and says, hey, defend me, I'm gonna pay you this much money or hey, I wanna buy that house and you're a broker, you're gonna make a two million pound, two million pound fee on it. You know, for our own protection, we have to keep this out. So in answer to your question, I don't know what's going to happen next. What I know is what we have now is very bad. You have a guaranteed, this is bad for Russia, and this is bad for the world. So if you want to use the expression that something that it could be worse afterwards, right? Hey, it can always be worse, right? I mean, it, don't, you know, don't leave your house. It could, it could be bad out there, right? I mean, it, it's, it's just a bad argument. I mean, we, we, we try and make things better. That's what you know, Bill and I tried to do with the Sergei with the Magnitsky sanctions, and that's what Navalny is doing, risking his life sitting in a Russian jail. And, and I just hope that one day Russians have the the strength to just, you know, they don't have to do anything violent. They go out in the street. They you, you, listen. You have millions of people standing out on the street saying, "We're not going to work until this guy's gone." Right? Yeah. They'll go. I, I hope that's what happens. And I think, as we're recording this, uh, President Biden has just addressed Congress for the first time in his presidency. I was encouraged by what I heard from him with regards Putin. I think he's playing it really well. And I think he I think he gets it. I really do. And unlike and that's so critical, this reset idea is so just dunderheaded and it's got to go. And I think with Biden, he understands it because not only does he see it geopolitically, but also it's personal for him. It went after his kid, you know, he, he yeah. knows the score. So I think that while we, he might not, bless you, while he might not, you know, communicate it to us in a way that, that makes us happy, I think behind the scenes, he really does uh, know what the dangers are and he's going to work, you know, to get to, to get to the result that we all want, which is Putin going bye-bye. Lord knows the, the, the guy's done so much wrong for Russia, for the United States, for, for, for world peace, frankly, because by, by weakening the NATO alliance and undermining all of that stuff, it's, it threatens another world war, point blank. I mean, it's, it's crazy. So I, I hope that, uh, that it works out and, and that he goes and Navalny succeeds him and we live happily ever after. But, you know, I'm a novelist. I like happy endings. What can I say? Uh, I'm an optimist. Jameson Firestone, thank you so much for joining. This was so great. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for, yeah, and thanks for having me on. The Prevail theme song is by Matthew Fassa. Sophia Tereshenko provided the Russian introduction. Voice talent is provided by Tally Briggs, Signa Della, Stephanie St. John, Brett Petticord, Ryan Byrne at History Falls Apart, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hawkey, Kanai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. 
please subscribe to the Prevail website with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the site and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. Until next time, we shall prevail. MSW Media.